Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lay Film Podcast, where four film grads come together to review gems of cinema. And I'm your co-host, Richard, and here with me are my other co-hosts. Patrick. And Tyler. And Kevin. And in this episode, Patrick actually chose the film for our episode 26, right? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, episode 26. So before we get started, let's talk about some news or any new media that we've been consuming lately. Does anyone want to go first? I went to the movies last night for the first time in, what? in like six months because it just reopened. What, what I watched uh, Chaos Walking. <laughs> oh, the uh, with, Tom Holland. With Tom Holland and oh. Daisy Ridley. <laughs> it was cool. I heard not so great things about the movie. Yeah, it was whatever. <laughs> like I was just excited to be sitting in a movie theater. Wow, that's exciting. Some, what, cool, some cool CGI. What, uh, what theater did you go to? Uh, Century Roseville. I actually, we went to Blue Oaks and they were like, yo, you bought your tickets for Roseville. Oh, <laughs> we went no. to the wrong theater. <laughs> I was like, hella late. <laughs> I was like, of course. <laughs> but yeah, it was cool being in the theater. Yeah, I heard that uh, the Tower Theater is opening back up today. I oh, think. really? I think. Um, I, I also believe that they were bought out by another place, but mm-hmm. they're going to like double down on like the types of movies that are showing there. Really? Yeah, we should go. Oh. We should go check a movie at the tower. Yeah. Oh, dude, that restaurant. Shoot. You know that restaurant right under the tower that we all. I think you, uh, me, and Richie went to the Empress. Remember, it's like oh, under the, the tower. Oh, I think you're talking about the Crest. Oh, the Crest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Shit, dude, yeah. the Empress was amazing. Yeah, that restaurant closed down. Oh, it did. Yeah. No. Oh, that man. place was sick. I was uh, at the underground one with mm-hmm. like the film posters and. Yeah, they, like, yeah. named all their cocktails after movies and shit. Yeah. I loved, like, the ceilings and stuff. Like, it was, like, uh, vaulted ceilings or yeah. something like that. It was, like, super old, like, speakeasy style. Mm-hmm. Damn, that sucks that it closed down. That was a really cool place to, like, go to. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm going to go downtown one day, and then I'm just going to be, like, just so miserable looking at all the places that, like, closed down. <laughs> closed down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like tumbleweed flowing. Like. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that too. <laughs> um, so, anyone else consumed anything lately? Uh, I went to the drive-ins last weekend, and I saw a reboot of like this 2000 series called Wrong Turn. I know. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, it just came out recently, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, Isn't that the movie where they get chased down by like the fucking semi truck driver or whatever? I think so. I, I don't. Even, I can't even remember what happened. <laughs> the, uh, I remember being scared of that movie. I watched when the I watched first it as one with Eliza Dushku, the one uh, with the cannibals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had Jeremy Sisto and all these other like, yeah, B movie <laughs> actors. Um, yeah. How was the movie, by the way? <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, it's one of the best films that have come out recently yeah, right? yeah absolutely i mean um there was one scene where, well i mean like i don't yeah i don't care right now <laughs> there was like this one scene where a giant tree like it's tum- like it's cut down and like tumbles down the hill and like crushes somebody to death and i saw that in the trailer and i'm like i was like looking at probably like four different movies at the time, because it's like all the ones that are playing are like hot garbage, <laughs> and like, and I was like, this one seems pretty entertaining. And then, so yeah, it was cool though. I I just like Tyler. I just liked seeing a movie, and I was 
Like when I was there, I'm like, dude, I completely forgot about drive-ins. It's like the perfect way to like go out, but also like still be safe and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how the fuck did I forget about this for like an entire year? Like, <laughs> I've never been to a drive-in before. What? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. There's like one right out near Rancho Cordova, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's oh. it's and it's only like nine bucks oh, wow. a ticket, and yeah, it's pretty tight. You just tune in, tune it into your radio and. You could do that? Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's oh. how you listen to it. Oh, I thought the whole time you sit in your car and you have to like roll the windows down and like, <laughs> I can't hear anything. <laughs> no, it's oh. like all pretty high tech, man. Wow. My experience with driving or drive, yeah, driving is yeah, you park, you're with your special gal, and then an alien from another planet shows up and takes the head off the car. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you had a good experience. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think there's. There's some trauma you want to talk about there. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you got a lot to unpack. So. <laughs> no, I, I do kind of have like a... When I was a kid, I went and saw AI at a drive-in. Whoa! Mm. And I remember... Yeah, I remember being like a little kid. So I was like not strong enough to stay awake. And I think when the mom died, I was like all sad. And then I woke up and the alien showed up and I was like, oh, I'm sad again. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's Stanley Kubrick's AI, right? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. version? Yeah. That. Is there another AI? No, I mean, Kubrick actually was going to do that movie before he yeah, passed. Gave and, it to Spielberg? Spielberg did it, yeah. yeah. It's like when Zack Snyder did Justice League and Joss Whedon took it and fucked it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> AI is not good. I don't attribute that to Kubrick. Uh, oh, you didn't like the movie? I no. I think uh, if Kubrick had full, I don't know what he was going for even. But if it was more Kubrick, I think it would have been different. In certain, no one hit the Spielberg beats or whatever. Yeah, especially if it was coming hot off of a Eyes Wide Shut. Like, ooh, I feel like he would have gone some places with it. I know it's supposed to be like his, like more uplifting. Really? Yeah, it's supposed to be not like an adult movie and kind of for kids at the same time. What? But it's still like, I think Kubrick wouldn't have done, because Spielberg, he did Close Encounters as well, right? Mm-hmm. It feels like there's shades of that, or like the spectacle of the aspects of the film are greater than like the narrative through line. But that could just be me. I think age poorly, like there's like the rock and roll scene or punk scene <laughs> with like motorcycle derbies and robots <laughs> or something. Because I don't think Kubrick would have had this in. <laughs> I think it would have been, like, different or, like, I don't know. It's all hypothetical. Um, I also watched this really cool film recently called Mannequin. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you had me for a minute. <laughs> Please tell me more about this movie. Yeah, so uh, we got a... A uh, A list director and two A list actors on this podcast, and a, and a B list sound guy, <laughs> B list location guy, A plus hottie. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the best snacks to the set. <laughs> but yeah, Kevin directed a film. Everybody called Mannequin. That I did. Yeah, we were directed, like... wrote it. <laughs> We were, like, working on it for, like, a few years, and, yeah, we just finished it up. Thanks, Pat, for... <laughs> I, I do nothing. <laughs> I sat on it for almost a year, kind of. You and me both, partner. No, yeah. <laughs> we got the, what, a kind of rough edit? Like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Let's just take a big break. 
Yeah, I think I remember like <laughs> watching uh, that rough cut like it's a like, year and a half ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 35 minutes, no sound work done. Yeah. <laughs> you can still hear like the production audio in it, yeah, like, like yeah. people talking, like, <laughs> like oh yeah. That yeah, was a creative decision. Yeah, yeah. Like, just, just mute your computer. Just mute it. <laughs> <laughs> the sound's not done yet. It'll be done in a year. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. It took so goddamn long. I think it shows, and the budget was so small. Yeah, it came out good. Oh, yeah, for, yeah, 500? Yeah, yeah, it was like 500. To have like almost a 30-minute short film out of that, like, doesn't hurt to look at. And it's actually good, I think. And the music, you did the music. The music's like 90% of the film to me. wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. So far, you guys are too nice. Yeah, Kevin, you produced the music for and the soundtrack mm-hmm. for the film. Yeah, I've, I feel like I've just always been doing that since I've started making stuff back in high school. Like I remember when I first started doing music, it was like I, I bought like this one, or no, it was like a a, a road video mic that I got from my Canon T two I. And, like, I just put it on my camera, and I, like, pointed at my guitar amp, and I just recorded, like, my guitar off of it. And then, like, I had a fucking bongo that, like, <laughs> I tried doing, like, percussion on, and you could totally tell it's a fucking bongo. It's so bad. <laughs> but, yeah, like, ever since then, I've just, like, been... I I always do music for, like, my stuff because it's, like... I don't know. I don't want to have to worry about like copyright stu- or copyright and stuff. And then like now, I don't even think about it. It's just like a given that I'll do the music for mm-hmm. it. I'd like to one day be able to like um, secure the rights for music. I think it's better stuff. that way, though. Really? Yeah. Like originally composed. Mm-hmm. Damn. More, yeah. So DIY and you know, yeah, you don't have to worry. Yeah, like you said about the copyright, and it's just really totally indie. Like do it everything yourself. I can totally see that, like, tour, total auteurism. Yeah. No, dude, it, it was so daunting. Like, right when we finished up production for it, I was, like, <laughs> like yeah. having, like, an existential crisis because I'm, like... That's just a lot of work. That's, that's why I would want to just pick, like, just get rights to something because that's too much fucking work. Probably. Right? <laughs> so props to you for that. The easiest way is public domain. Yeah, public yeah. domain, classical music. Yes. <laughs> That's the way. <laughs> it's ageless. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't want to end up like Charles Burnett and not being able to fucking... Oh, right. Because of the music that he chose, right? For that right. film, didn't it get delayed release because of copyright or issues too? He couldn't afford distribution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, really? Yeah. Because of the... The rights to all the music were so expensive. I think 2003 or 2007. He has like seven, four like legendary <clears throat> artists on there. Like mm-hmm. who is it? Like Etta James, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, uh, is Louis Louis Armstrong? Yeah, Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And one so, more. So uh, the film that we'll talk about uh, soon is uh, something that Patrick selected called Killer Sheep. Yeah, it has a lot of like these classic songs that are that are done really well like the the transitions to these songs and every time they start playing like it's beautifully done but yeah i think that's part of the reason why this film has been laid in obscurity for a long time because uh yeah of the the music selection and just being able to get this film released 
to the masses, and it's still not really released to the masses, so it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's really hard to find. Yeah, I think. Then, didn't Gabby? Not Gabby. Didn't in the Discord chat? Didn't someone look it up? And it was like two hundred dollars for the DVD. I think oh, so. Abby. Abby. Oh Abby yeah, yeah. Said she it said it was like, like two hundred seventy bucks or something to buy it, mm-hmm. which is insane. Mm-hmm. But it should just be like, like how come Criterion hasn't picked that up yet? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that I, I saw that UCLA later on like paid for all the rights to the music and stuff oh my like gosh. years later and they preserved it or they did the 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 rec- not recreation but they did the upscaling. oh the re- the restoration of restoration, it restoration mm-hmm. yes dang and wasn't that the school that he dropped out of too or like he or was it USC he did not drop out of <clears> UCLA <throat> i i had to do more context yeah, they uh i think he was a part of a certain group of like young black american students at UCLA who love the not love they love the university or the benefits of the university like Charles Burnett in relation to Killer of Sheep talks about how the film cost no more than uh $10,000 to make back then I think which is a lot yeah that's a, a ton. oh my gosh in 1976 yeah for a few I think I someone did the math that equals like $38,000 today Oh really? Or maybe it was five thousand to make the film, hmm. like with inflation or something. Like the value is now like the equivalent of thirty eight thousand, and he attributed that to the university. Was like it was a place to edit the films, mm-hmm. develop the film, <clears throat> do all the manual work that would cost money throughout the process of using film. He's like, oh, the university provided that to us as students, so he only had to pay actors and for the equipment rentals or whatever maybe locations and like food and yeah he filmed it for a year in 72 and 73 i believe and uh it was his senior thesis and uh he's a part of a class of students in the film program i believe that they had to essentially be forced out because they had just been they had had enough credits but like charles burnett was saying like why would you leave that institution that provides all this great services to you you want to pursue your artistic expression you're going to stay there as long as you can just take the classes whatever he just i think he had like way more credits than required <laughs> or again they had, to, they had to intervene and go like look you gotta graduate this year <laughs> <laughs> like van wilder <laughs> <laughs> super 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 senior yeah. No, that's a that's a really brilliant. I mean, he's absolutely in the right though, because it's like how like where other, you know, in, in what other sort of facility can you actually have access to all those resources? Because it's like, I'm sure the the film industry back then was not too uh, easy to get into, especially for you know, given the, I don't know, given just the indie nature that they were all a part of, and like up and coming filmmakers and whatnot. And it's like, unless you go into, like, the studio system at that time, then I'd imagine that. I mean, it's still like that way today, I, I feel like. But, but, dang, no, that he's absolutely right, though. Like, shoot, I would be doing that if I could, like, right. to have access to the studio at Sac State. Like, oh, man, I would totally, like, pay, like, a monthly thing just for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, didn't you do that, too, at the beginning of Mannequin? Like, the credit, or the opening credit, right? It doesn't say, like, Studio 58... Oh, um, I think that that's, that's uh, Jezzer's uh, 
production title. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just took the <laughs> took the name I was, from the I was room. Wondering, I was like, oh shit, yeah. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> That's where we all became friends. Yep. Studio 58B. Mm-hmm. The good old basement. <laughs> the good old underfunded basement. With just a bunch of lights from the 70s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that studio is still pretty, still pretty rad, though. Yeah, I'd love that place. No, it's just like there's, there's two other studio stages, and it's like one's for the internal media thing of the university, so we're not allowed to touch that. And the other one was used for storing props. <laughs> and we each got the one in the middle. I was like, okay, I guess we don't need two if they're <laughs> available. So, uh, yeah, so before we move on to talk about the movie, I just want to bring up that uh, I've been watching The Walking Dead. Ooh. I don't know if anyone here watches that show, but I, I took like a maybe a four-year-long hiatus from watching it um, because of uh, certain events that happened in the show that made me really upset. Um, That's just still going, huh? Yeah, and to my surprise... so I, Okay, so I watched season 9 and 10. I skipped oh my God, half of season... You skipped seasons. half the seasons? Okay, so I, okay, I, I committed a television sin, everyone. All right? <laughs> I went on YouTube and I just recapped season 7 and 8 because... Found out that those two seasons were not that good, and I already watched half of season seven, and I didn't like it. And I'm like, eh, you know what? I'm done. Like, I'm 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 done. Like, we're good. <laughs> and then I heard some things about the show and what they were doing creatively, and I'm like, that's interesting. I'm gonna hop back on the show. So I watched season nine and ten, and wow, is the show like freaking good? Like, despite some characters having left the show. Um, them leaving actually elevated some of the other cast members to, um, yeah, to like bigger roles. And I thought that was very interesting. And the fact that, uh, they switched showrunners. Um, so Angela Kang, she was a writer on season two and was producing the show up until yeah season nine and 10, where she took over as showrunner. And I think she did an incredible job with where the story is going. And even, um, Samantha Morton is on season nine as the antagonist. And I thought, man, she was brilliant as the main villain. And I was like, whoa, I'm loving where the show is going. Norman Reedus uh, as Daryl, just incredible. Like going from supporting character in season one to like main, like the top, the first person's name. That's really, yeah. His name comes up That's, first. Uh, what's his name? In this? He has to do with long hair, right? Yeah, okay. in the motorcycle. Yeah, and then the crossbow. Um, so he's top billing, and then you know you have Denai uh, Carrera, who um, is famous for playing Michonne. So she is like second in the cast, and Melissa McBride as Carol. Her evolution from season one to now is like oh shoot, incredible. I remember Carol. Yeah, yeah. She oh my is, god, which one's she's, Carol she's the one again? with the sister. That's She's the one with wrong. the short hair who had the abusive husband in season one. Oh, oh yes. yes. And now her evolution as a character. She's... Whew, man. I love her character. She's the older chick. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I remember now. Yeah, so she... Yeah, so, man, the... Uh, yeah, so Andrew Lincoln, who played Rick, um, left the show um, in the very beginning of season nine um, because, you know, he wanted to pursue other things he wanted to be with his family so they kind of wrote off his character 
I mean, no spoilers. I don't, I'm not going to say why, what happened to his character, but because he left, it actually elevated everybody else. And man, yeah, I, I love where the show is going and um, it's ending in season 11. So that actually makes me sad because this show does such a good job of um, with the cast of characters. I love how colorful and diverse and expansive the show is getting. And yeah, I even love the fact that they had uh, Rick's daughter, Judith, be a character now. Instead of just this baby for like 10 years, they actually <laughs> they actually aged up that character and she became this like cowboy hat, wielding, sword-wielding character. And it's <laughs> Samurai cowboy. Yeah, it's freaking awesome and I love it. Um, I so stopped yeah. watching that though and like after like, I forget, Negan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. 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 I stopped watching around that then too. Like but season five or six. Yeah. I feel like any show that goes past seven seasons is you're doing too much though. I feel like okay. So surprisingly, season nine and ten are probably the best seasons the show has ever done since like season six. So if you, yeah, so I've been binge watching the show and I'm like, man, I love this show. Um, and then uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, Steven Yeun is an Oscar-nominated actor now. Um, yep. Who's, he's most famous for The Walking Dead, and now he becomes... And, you know, there are a lot of technicalities when it comes to this title, but some people are saying it's been 93 years since he was, you know, of cinema where he's the first Asian-American actor to be nominated. But um, people are saying the actor from The King and I, back in 1956, I think it's um, Yul Bremner or something. He's, like, a Russian actor, but, like... Mong- of Mongolian descent. So people were saying, oh, well, technically, that's not the first Asian. I don't know. I don't like, know. Can't we just be happy for Stephen Yu? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, regardless, 93 years, 65 years, because of King and I came out in 1956. I mean, if, if he, I, I don't know if he considers himself an Asian American actor. Regardless, it's been at least seven decades, right, since. There has been a nomination for an Asian American actor, and I'm just happy that Steven Yeun made history for uh, his uh, role in Minari. So, um, yeah, I mean, with so much controversy going on today with like hate crimes and whatnot, I I feel like I don't want people to forget, you know, that that's happened. And you know, we all know how the Oscars are very slowly um, including, you know other actors from other backgrounds and it's i think it's really hard to break through that ceiling when when you're not being recognized so i think that's like a step like a huge stepping stone so just wanted to bring that up so, yeah i mean like first we had like parasite winning mm-hmm. like best picture and like now it's like dude like yeah that's awesome like right? come on let's get more inclusivity and diversity up in here because like it's stale it's boring mm-hmm. i don't want to see another love letter to hollywood win best picture it's like come on <laughs> <laughs> the oscars have been dead to me since hoop dreams got shafted when i found that out <laughs> never forget never forget <laughs> greatest sin. that is a crime <laughs> no yeah, i didn't yeah dude i remember like first watching that documentary in bus's class for documentary filmmaking and i like full-on was like driven to tears because of it because it like hit home so hard and i remember thinking like man a documentary's never made me feel this way and then like since then i've tried looking up other ones that are like similar to it and i don't know it's just so underappreciated yeah, we gotta revisit that. 
re-record that episode. Do another hoop dreams. Yeah. <laughs> A recut of it. Back to the hoop. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, with that being said, uh, let's dive into our review of Killer of Sheep. And I would like to give a quick synopsis of the film. So Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep is about um, a worker who lives at a slaughterhouse. His personal life is drab. Dissatisfaction and ennui keep him unresponsive to the needs of his adoring wife, and he must struggle against influences, which would dishonor and endanger him and his family. Girl, come on in this house. You know, I done told you about listening to grown folks talk. Music, laugh, wants to buy it, wants to what do you want with another raggedy ass car for, huh? Trying to get ahead, man. You niggas are sick. Now you think you're middle class. Man, I ain't poor. I, I give away things to the Salvation Army. You can't give away nothing to the Salvation Army if you poll. I mean, we may not have a damn thing sometimes. You want to see somebody that's poll? Mm-hmm. Now you go around and look at Walters. Now he be sitting over an oven and, and, and with nothing but a coat on and, and, and sitting around there rubbing their knees all day and eating nothing but wild greens picked out of a vacant lot. No, that ain't me. And damn sure won't be. So Patrick, uh... You picked this film, so do you want to talk about why you decided to pick this? Yeah. Uh, for even knowing about the film itself or anything smart, I may say this episode, all credit goes to Professor Rice <laughs> at Sacramento State. I would not have been aware of this film's existence because it is pretty undercovered. Like, you have to seek out like the greatest black American films. You have to, like, search online for stuff. And even then, you have to find, like, genuine sources, like, less commercialized sources. Where, like, people are like, no, this is, like, universally held up as, like, one of the great, if not the greatest black American film. And, uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot of barriers on it. Like, some people I know don't watch stuff before the 80s. Some people don't watch, yeah, just black and white, no thank you. And all those stuffs. But, yeah, I just saw this film in a class... For Professor Rice, and uh, I loved it, and I wanted to share it with you and everyone. I want everyone to see this film. That's that's, just, that's interesting because uh, I also took Professor Rice, Doug Rice, uh, me, Tyler, and and you, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, he actually he never showed this film. Yeah, so, he didn't show it in our class. Um, I'm glad that you were able to tell us about it because he did show a lot of really great films that I wouldn't have known about, you know? Um, And I can see how this film would be quite the influence on a lot of uh, up and coming um, African-American filmmakers of that time, you know, like the eighties and nineties, especially like filmmakers like John Singleton or uh, Spike Lee uh, with their films. So, yeah, I like the very undercover, like, Italian neorealistic style and nature of this film. Because it's very low budget. Mm-hmm. So they don't really, they didn't really have a choice but to go into that kind of realm and have, like, non-professional actors and shoot on location. So, 
I think I um I forget what it was, but I think you mentioned it, Pat. Where I don't know if it was after we did the um did the viewing party for this. Which, by the way, we're doing viewing parties now. Yes. Um. So if keep a lookout for that on our Instagram, um, at Lay Film Podcast. If you want to ever join in on these viewing parties, we're trying to do it that way. Um, more people can see the movies themselves because some of them are a bit hard to find. So yeah, uh, we're doing that now. And it's all on Discord, so yeah, keep an eye out for it. Um, but I don't know if we discussed it after um, the podcast, but um, I thought it was like so insane that this movie is not more well known as it currently is right now. And I think you mentioned Pat that like had if it was shown in like or if it was made in Italy, like oh, yeah. every single body would like know certain scenes by heart and like. All of these things. I think that's a Ebert quote. Oh, he in, said that? In his review of Killer of Sheep, he said, if it was made in Italy in the 1950s, everyone would have every scene memorized. When he was like referencing yeah. how underappreciated it is. Yeah. Like, there's so many, like, noteworthy scenes. Like, even, like, some of the smaller ones where not much is going on. Like, it's so impactful because of how grounded it is, but also how distanced and just observant it all is and in the day-to-day living of these of this family and just trying to get by it's like oh there's so many moments where i just like felt yeah (laughs) and especially with the um the symbolism of like sheep and everything and being led to the slaughter and the juxtaposition of like all the happy sounding music and like all this stuff like um, Richie mentioned that like how its influences could be felt with like John Singleton and Spike Lee yeah. and like this whole other new, it, it like paved the way for like all these up and coming filmmakers who can explore this, this realm of, uh, Los Angeles during this, uh, period of time, mm. you know, dealing with a lot of, um, civil unrest and everything like that. And yeah, Charles Burnett just like came in and steamrolled over it every single part in that area and i i really want to watch more of his work because i feel like he has such a unique voice and i don't know i just really appreciated this movie for what it was because not only was it like the perfect length but it just had so much heart inside of it and even stan like the main character of it like i genuinely felt for him and his family as he was just he was trying so hard to to not give in to like this this pressure to to do what everyone else is doing and he's just trying to li- live a simple and honest life and his family is trying to as well and i don't know i think that it, so much can be said about like this period of time in history because i feel like that's what it, what was going on for everyone or for quite a lot of people who are stuck in poverty and also, like, in denial of it, too. Like, there's a brilliant scene where Stan's like, I'm not poor. Like, that other guy, he's, like, going and, like, eating, like, weeds in the grass. And, from like, an empty lot. Yeah, from an empty lot. Like, that's poor. And it's, like, I feel that sense of pride. And, like, I don't know. I just feel for Stan. I feel for Stan so much. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this movie, though. I loved it. Yeah, I really love this movie, too. I feel like it... It's just, like, a fun watch, even though, like, not nothing happens, but, like, it's just, like, a regular, regular instances in life. And, like, every, they just make, Charles Burnett makes so many things look so beautiful, like, the most simplest things. Like, they're just sitting down, having a cup of coffee, 
and what does he say? He puts it up to his face or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's like, doesn't it remind you of, like, the feeling of right after sex or something? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that's just, like, I feel like a regular conversation you would have with someone, and even though, I don't know, these are things that happen in everyday life, I feel like that's actually hard to, really hard to nail down and encapsulate. Mm. I think on this rewatch for me, one of the things that jumped out was uh, Stan, the main character, is, uh, and with Charles Burnett's film making or his approach, it feels like there's a, it's like an, not oppressive, but it's like a, it's trying to be this realistic and insight into this community that is underrepresented in film at the time. But also he's like heavily injecting like the sentimentality of, I feel like himself or just like, it just feels pure. Like that line with the uh, coffee that they're drinking. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, uh, yeah, he's saying, like, oh, it's like when you're hugging up with the girl after sex, you know, like the warmth coming off each other's bodies. And he's sitting there and he's like holding the cup to the side of his face. And then he's like, oh, he's like remembering that being sentimental. And then his friends is like, oh, I don't, I don't date chicks with malaria. And he starts <laughs> laughing at him. <laughs> there's, there's so many like factors in and outside of the community that just like take pot shots. It feels like at Stan mm-hmm. and he feels like, and then strength as a character, just like, nope, just gotta, yeah, the, he's the ultimate hero in that he just tries to do what's right and provide for the family. Yeah, there's so many brilliant, like, poetic moments in it. I, I was actually first reminded of, um, I mean, as I was watching it during the first run-through, I was like, why does this feel so familiar? And then the second one, I finally, like, pieced it together. I'm like, oh, this reminds me of, like, Satyajit, I believe it's pronounced, I'm probably butchering it, but um, Satyajit Ray, an Indian filmmaker, mm. and with his, like, Apu trilogy following, like, the life of, like, a young boy all the way through, like, adolescence and his, um, like, throughout three movies. And, like, no, Pat, you, like, hit the hit the nail, like, right on the head with it, like, with some of those brilliant moments with, with Stan and, like, I don't know, just, there's some, I love when movies, um, like, there's just during conversations, they allow the imagination to flow free. They allow the audience to, to um, have free reign in that area. You know, for instance, when they're describing, like, that poetic moment of, like, feeling the warmth off of each other's bodies. It's like, you don't have to show that. Like, if anything, like, the imagination is far more powerful and far more engaging um, if you allow the audience to explore that on their own. And it's kind of like just telling a story to someone. It's so simple, but so beautiful. And it takes on a whole other meaning in the eye or in the mind's eye of another person. And I think that that's, I agree that that's where this movie excels. Yeah, um, I do like the raw and authentic nature of this film. It kind of, in some ways, does remind me a bit of like Richard Linklater, where the dialogue is like very natural. Like it feels like real people talking to each other, and it almost feels improvised in some ways. And um, it's it, it feels almost like an anthology, like every other sequence feels like it's its own bit and for some people it could be a turnoff for for some um it works for the film because there isn't really like a linear structure uh yeah it almost feels like a collection of short stories but you know with the same cast um because there are sequences where like 
it is kind of jarring, but when it cuts to a scene where they're listening to music and Stan is dance like slow dancing with his wife, or it's more like she's slow dancing with him and he's just kind of like barely moving with her. And I'm and I'm wondering, I'm noticing like, why is this man like not affectionate towards his wife? Because well, okay, we we know like later when that scene ends, you know, like she's like sobbing to herself and it's just like dang, you know, like the performance from his wife is uh is incredible for such a low budget film and getting all these like non-professional actors um yeah some of the acting is is great uh even down to like the 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 child actors as well um like seeing some of the like uh the daughter humming to the song Mm -hmm. that um stan's wife is listening to while she's um you know getting ready uh in the bathroom um yeah, there there are some really great sequences. Um, although I don't know, like sometimes I am kind of put off by like the nonlinear nature of it. It feels very experimental, um, and I think it's certainly ahead of its time. Since, like you mentioned, Patrick, it they filmed in the early nineteen seventies, seventy two and three, I believe. Yeah, and it, so they spent uh, quite a long time working on this film, and it didn't get like. Uh, like a release until 1977 but they didn't get an official release until uh, three decades later which is a crime um yeah yeah i i like the uh there's there's the like very it's not fly on the wall i think but it's like it's an it's a collection of short things that happen in the lives of these people and i really appreciate in the film that the only real through line or conflict whatever arc it just stands like metaphysical. It's it's like a metaphysical conflict that no one says directly, of like I'm so upset with blank or I can't do blank. It's just like like are you gonna try to like come to bed, Stan? Or like no, I can't sleep tonight. He just he's up all night. And I think it's just uh, it's a great. I think the film has a timeless nature where it is very much about the black experience in America in that region at that time, as well as like a uniform class perspective from like someone in the lower aspects of the class in a capitalist system like America. I think there's a timeless nature to that where I think the through line in the name of the film is Killer of Sheep. And I think like a lot of the synopsis mentioned how he's like be, he's disassociating from his job where he, for eight hours, he's just killing sleep killing sheep and slaughtering them in a factory slaughterhouse and then he has to go home and he's that alien that alienation or that that psychological separation he's developing in work to cope with his working environment is also transferring to his home environment and his relationship with his wife and kids like he's distant with his son and the son's going through an angsty period and it's just yeah it's like it, it shows it's like a good example of how like the struggle to survive in the lower class adds tensions and stresses just to the relationships of what you would believe to be concrete universal aspects of like the husband and wife who love each other. Like you believe their love is just completely concrete and it is, but it's the external factors of like, yeah, he's butchering lambs all day and he can't be intimate anymore. He can't when she's dancing with him and instigating intimacy He's just so checked out and disassociated. He's like, oh, I'm just like, he, I'm sure he feels bad, but he never expresses it. He just like leaves and he's like, I can't, I can't sit here and humor you or whatever. 
like the more into it she gets, and the more she's trying to force intimacy, he just like removes himself. He's like, I, I can't. Like, don't get your hopes up anymore right now. I just can't right now. And he leaves. And like, there's no. I think it's great that there's no direct line where he says that. No one even mentions it. It's just he just doesn't sleep, and he's just always finding stuff to do to fix up the house or just just small stuff to try to get ahead and with the way things are it seems like he'll never get ahead it seems like he's not allowed to get ahead and I think that's what the film's trying to illuminate and I really like it yeah I, th I think that there's a lot to be said in regards to that because um even when he's given like a way out uh, you see like the way that people try to um side skirt like this you know you there's that brilliant interaction where the I forget I don't even think that they're they're referred to in it by their names but there's these two guys who like mm -hmm. walk up to Stan's house and um, they're like propositioning him like hey you know we need a third guy and then his wife comes out and has to like end up defending him or defending Stan because Stan isn't doing anything like he's just as helpless as can be you know trying to fight off these people who are influencing him. It's like, like, oh, but look here at Stan. Like, he's he's worked his entire life, and what has that gotten him? Like, all this stuff. And, like, nobody can really say anything because it's the truth. Like, it's like you're 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 damned if you do and damned if you don't. And, no, like, I, I definitely view poverty in that light. It's, it's a very – it's a debilitating system because, like, once you – caring about finances is like a full-time job in and of itself – and if you aren't able to take care of yourself financially, uh, and also if you have a family to take care of on top of that, it's like good luck having any sort of identity or like being able to connect with anyone or anything because you will just get so lost in the mix because it's designed to do that. It's designed to keep you there. And yeah, you touched on, I think there's two great alternatives, like two propositions are made for like him to maybe earn a little bit more but they're both like very exploitive and i think yes one is ooh. yeah you mentioned the two guys i think that's like the closest it's not even a direct example again or it's all subtle but i think i've seen people reference killer of sheep is in response to a bit of the black exploitation films that were being made in the early 70s like if mm -hmm. like when the uh when the early Black exploitation films, the narratives were taken away from the black creators, and it was then driven by profit margins only, and so the narratives became less singleized and focalized, and became more about just like, yeah, just commercial spectacle. And I want to reference Professor Rice's class again, because he made us watch uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is a great, I'm trying to think of the term for it besides black exploitation, but it's one of the early ones. And it's like a, it's just like a police drama, not police drama, but like a buddy movie, buddy cop movie, like written and directed by a black author or black director on the East Coast. And it had small success in the black community. And so like smaller production companies saw that success and they were like, okay, well, let's remove the directors from this process and just give them like red meat. It has no content, no depth, no context. It's just gunfights and nudity on the screen and so people attribute killer of sheep to addressing that through those characters who are showing up in leather jackets and hats and they talk in the shades and everything yeah they talk fast and they're given a proposition like uh we need someone who can drive or else we face the long day of the law or something something like that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's all like crime related. Like they want to make money in, in illegal means, right? I, somehow yeah, it's they money, want to like, murder like, somebody. Yeah, it's like it's not only just make money, like ripping off something. It's just also like the killing of someone else. Mm-hmm. And Stan's just having none of it. Like, why are you telling me this? I, I this uh, watching that sequence reminded me of like the other TV show that I was talking about on the last episode called Berlin Alexander Platz. And it's very much the same thing. Like here you have like an honest soul who is just trying to make their way into the world. And, you know, here you have like Stan just sitting on his porch, probably on his like day off or like hours before he has to like go into work. And then you have like the influences of the world creeping into his home, you know, right outside of his door. And he has to make a decision of whether or not he's going to give into that. And this is just one moment that we're given a glimpse into. Like, imagine the countless other instances that some things like this have come his way. And let's say that he was even more, uh, he was facing even more, like, hard times in those other instances. And, like, it's just a, a good way that I, like, or after watching it for the second time, I want to, like, summarize it to myself as, like, Everyone just wants a piece of him at all times. And it's like you have like this this constant like give and take and like the tension of um people just constantly like like Stan's just trying to live and yet like the world creeps in on him. And I can see why he does dis- disassociate to try and like maintain some sense of self in the face of overwhelming nihilism. Yeah, that was like, oh, whoops. Oh, you're good. That was like one of my favorite scenes, though, is like, because in a, like, trying times like that, it's so easy to just be like, oh, this is a good opportunity and I really need money and whatever else. Like, we all could be persuaded, not maybe not to like kill somebody, but something like that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You think about it and then, I don't know, I just thought it was a really like powerful scene of like, how strong him and his wife are and just how they just want to be good, honest people, no matter how bad things are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if like somebody owes him money, he doesn't pat them down or be forceful about it. You know, there's like the brilliant line where he's like, you owe me money. And he was like, I don't have anything but my good looks. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many crazes. Like, Where do you think I can get some money? He's like, go rob a liquor store. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He did mention that. Yeah. And I was just like, Damn, it just goes right back at him. Like, yo, you gotta like but go the, out of your means, you know, to to get money. And it's just like, why, you know, it's, it would only put himself more into like a bigger hole. Yeah, and he doesn't he later at, towards the end of the film when like his buddy's working on his car. Doesn't he just like does another good deed and he like gives oh, him yeah. like peaches and like mm-hmm. his friend just some money just because they need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like that's like that shows a lot, especially when. You know, you're already struggling and you're still willing to help mm-hmm. your friends. Yeah. Another thing I noticed, too, like with his uh, relationship with the son, like even though he's a very absent father in terms of being able to lend affection and guidance to his children, when they act out, he doesn't necessarily punish them in the traditional sense of what was common back then, which was to like beat your child. Uh, the film and, like, opens with him getting the business that's him as a child i believe Mm -hmm. that opening lecture about if anyone's fighting your brother you gotta step in even if he's right wrong it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. and yeah his his mom comes over and gives him like a fierce slap 
Yeah, I don't know. I thought that... I just thought it was, like, so telling of, like, his character, like, right off the bat. And, I I mean, you can see, like, the effect... I mean, one thing that I found myself questioning was what would happen if Stan did have a bit more time at home or if he was in another line of work. And it was... I think you touched upon it very briefly like i don't know if you were going to talk about it or not but when he goes in the liquor store yeah. and he's about to cash his check that was the second proposition yeah and like you you know you have like the white liquor store owner who's like brushing up against him being like stan you know you could come work for me oh this guy just works up in the front you could work in the back with me mm-hmm. and stan like you can tell that he would it would be a much better he would be much better off financially and probably mentally but would he but see but that's the thing like would he though and it's like the answer is no it's obviously no because you would have this this owner who is just constantly exploiting him just because she's attracted to him and it would create even more strain on his marriage because you know he'd have to be dealing with this rather than slaughtering sheep all day and Mm. i don't know it's just it's just so unfortunate because it's like he just is trying to find a way out, but he can't. It's He's, like, trapped in a maze. Mm-hmm. And it's like, although this situation might look better on paper, it probably would not be. It would be just as bad, if not worse. Yeah, he's, like, psychologically oppressed to his environment, whether he works at the slaughterhouse killing all these sheep and he's already numb to, like, killing them, <laughs> or he's got to work under this um, liquor store owner who he doesn't also want to be psychologically oppressed by her either to be fetishized or to, you know, or whatever she wants to do with him. So, yeah, I can see how it's like a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. There's like the brilliant moment when like you see like all the sheep just like walking up the ramp and it's a long shot. Like Mm -hmm. you just see them like from the very beginning, just slowly walking up the ramp, being let up and they don't know what's going on. And it's like, you can just tell that, I mean, it's, I mean, I'm sure that anyone who watches this movie can like pick up on it, but it's just such a, I don't know, when I was watching that, it just crushed me internally. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the goats in the foreground on that shot, they're like leading goats. They're not slaughtered. Mm-hmm. They hang out ahead uh, at every stop to like, it's give like them a, like yeah, some the, sort of welcoming the coast is clear you guys can come up here come up here and, and it's they, like they have no idea that they're about to be led to the slaughter because mm-hmm. it's like it, i mean in the in the mind of like an animal they're just all they know is is how to be present they don't think about the past or the future they who knows if they're self-aware or whatever um given the state of their consciousness but and, but it's like we're the ones who know what's about to happen to them. And it's it's such like a question of morality as well, because it's like in spite of knowing all this, that you're about to end this creature's life who is completely unaware of your existence, but you have the power in your hand to determine whether or not they will be killed or saved. What do you do? Oh, you kill them and you kill the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one for eight hours, like five days a week, years probably. And the psychological toll that that must have on somebody, Mm -hmm. it was, I'd imagine that it snuffs out your humanity. I mean, it has to, like. Just makes you cold to everything. Yeah. And it's like, you have to, if you're going to, if you're going to have any sort of like bedrock to build your, 
your your well being upon. It's like this: the strength of Stan is being able to do that, and then refuse the propositions of like killing, being just the wheelman for a killing. That may leave that may lead to him being incarcerated. He may be caught. It's illegal. He may end up leaving his family, which is worse than slaughtering the sheep all day. And then same with the liquor store lady who's propositioning him to like, oh, we'll just hang out in the back. It's easy work. He'll run the store. You know, why don't you do that employment? And then he's being disloyal to his wife and he loves her. And then again, slaughtering sheep for eight hours a day is probably easier than that to him. Like even just this, the betrayal of his love and all that stuff. And Stan's such a great character in the film. You can't not like him, I think. I think that um, there's, well, there's this one philosopher named uh, Leibniz, I believe, who um, said that, or when people were asking, like, what, uh, like, there's so many different uh, versions of the world that could have been, right? And some people question, uh, you know, quote unquote, God's existence of, oh, well, if God existed, why is, why is this the world that he created? Why did he create evil? Uh, why is, um, why, why doesn't uh, good uh, run free pretty much. And his response was, well, this is the best of all possible worlds that we live in. And it, you know, thinking about that sort of, um, stance on morality and also the, the nature of good versus evil, which are like both man-made concepts as well to begin with, it just simply is. I think that, uh, killer of sheep reflects that sort of, uh, same ideology in that way, because, um, it's the best, you know, him killing sheep all day is the best possible version that of, uh, of his life that he has at the moment. And, and it's awful to say because it's like, oh, that's as good as it's going to get. And it's like, yeah, unfortunately that's the way that, you know, the community and capitalism and all of these different systems that have existed long before Stan or his family were ever alive. You know, that's how, that's how it was made and you're just stuck in it. Yeah. I think, yeah, you touched right on what Charles Burnett has said in interviews about this film is that, yeah, it's meant to be just a mirror of that experience at the time. I think even the premise killer of sheep is, he was talking to a guy on the bus. He was like, oh, I work at the slaughterhouse. And they were just talking. When he was at UCLA, he was just talking like, yeah, the way we kill the sheep is like I hit him with a hammer on top of the head. And he's like, yeah, I, all day I cave in skulls and then I go home. And I think Charles Burnett took that. Like the guy, I don't think the guy was too upset with it or it's just like, it is what it is. But Charles Burnett took that and he elevated it. As well as like injecting like little bits of realism. Like I think... The film, the film itself takes place in where he was raised. He was born in Mississippi, but he was raised in Watts, L.A. And in 65, there was like a massive riot in response to police brutality. And so he just, he doesn't sneak in like the aspects of police brutality, but the oppressive system he sneaks in. As well as I think he gets some of the Vietnam conflict in, in like one small scene with the veteran when they're in the housing complex or motel not motels but you know like the mm -hmm. small apartments and there's like a guy in his green jacket like hanging out at the stairs and upstairs is his wife with his like service gun and yeah. they're having some kind of domestic dispute and uh yeah and then like the son just gives the mom like the look of anger and it's just such a powerful like throwaway scene where stan just is walking by and he pokes his head in like what the hell's happening here 
And the guy gets his shades and leaves, and he's like, oh, okay, and he just keeps going. Or I think Charles Burdett was, like, taking authentic experiences from around that area, with the actors themselves being present in that area, and just injecting it into the film to give the overarching metaphysical conflict of how to exist in this time, in this place, just, like, more authentic. Like, this is how it is to exist as well for the audience. Yeah, actually, um, I knew someone who... Their first job as an 18 year old was, I think, I believe working either at a shelter or a hospital for animals where they had to kill like stray animals, like euthanize them. So that was like a very traumatizing experience, especially like when you're a young person having to do that, having to put down all these animals. Like, yes, mentioned like eight hours a day, like that is extremely traumatizing, especially when, yeah, you're just ending a life right in front of you and that's awful you know and they have to bag them up yeah put them away and then on to the next one so that still happens today mm-hmm. which is that's a terrible job hey man <laughs> yep <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, what are you going to do, not work? I think that's like the great overarching theme of the film. Mm -hmm. It's like the immense struggle of choosing to have to do that and go through that every day just Mm -hmm. to provide. It's like a, yeah, it's a grim reflection. Yeah, one thing I noticed too is that um, there's like a complete lack of of police presence in this as well. Like there's that one scene of uh, the two guys hopping the fence with the television, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like steal it, and the neighbors like, yeah, staring the, at him. Yeah, he's like, I'm gonna go. well, and then his friend's like, oh, he's calling the police. Then he like turns around, he's like, I wish, I wish, and he's like, and it's kind of like a dog eat dog world. That's that entire community, and it's like, what are you doing? Like you don't like this sort of thing happens. Mm-hmm. Where are you gonna call call the police? You think they're gonna do anything? Like all this other stuff, and I think that. Uh, that's such an interesting thing too, because uh, up until recently, um, I I found out. I mean, like, there's. I mean, if you like look at the uh, the beginnings of like the police system and why it was created, and it was like it was purposely like created to oppress. Yeah, Pinkertons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like purposely like created to to oppress the African American community, and. I believe so. I thought it was in the. I thought they were the Pinkertons were the, in the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. where they were just like hired muscle to beat up on unionizers. But I mean, like the first like actual oh, like police, 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 yeah, the police like uh, organization. I I forget where it was actually created. Um, let me look it up really quick. I know it was on the East Coast. Yes, I, I wonder if it was Detroit or Baltimore, I don't know. Maybe? Yeah, let me look up. I'm um, not sure. First. Yeah, I knew the Pinkertons were, like, yeah, just the hired muscle by, like, your tycoons, your mm-hmm. Carnegie, Rockefeller, all them guys. Yeah, it was in Boston. Boston. Oof. <laughs> and I know that um, even in Los Angeles, like, they, they were the ones that are responsible for, like, the way that it is currently right now. Like, the militarization of the police department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see, like, the SWAT equipment and everything, like, nowadays. And it's just a very ugly system that was built upon oppression and exploitation 
and to and to not see any of that presence in that in this movie in this area of Los Angeles it's very telling it's so telling of what it must have been like to live there mm-hmm. at the time so yeah like yeah they only they're only called when it's like again like the union trying to organize when there's something to break up when people are trying to change stuff they're probably called and we don't see that directly in the film because it's all an internal conflict with Stan. But yeah, like the. Uh, are we in spoilers? Seriously, I, I, I think we're. I think we're yeah. in spoilers. Yeah. Because uh, I think I think it was Ebert again, or maybe another reviewer, in some video I saw they were talking about like. The great one of the great, the great end of the film at the end, but like right before the end of the film, there's the the uh, car with the flat tire and all that stuff. And uh, the reviewer like mentions that there's an omnipresent threat of like poverty or just I'm trying to think of the words. There's an omnipresent threat of poverty, and it doesn't lean into convention. Like yeah, like I think the reviewer says like oh in a typical film they're going to the horse races. His friend has like a selected horse and a selected race that he knows in his heart is going to pay out big time. So they're going to the races, and in a typical film, either they'd win or lose when they got to the races, but Charles Burnett takes that, and it's like, they don't even get to the horse race. They can't even make it that far, because they, they got a flat, poverty is ever-present, and they can't even get to the position to gamble on getting out or not. Such a good movie, I think. It, it also reminds me of that scene, too, where... Um where Stan finally gets paid and him and his friend go to the mm. kind of the upper scale area to purchase the, the, the engine. I don't think that's upper scale. Oh, it isn't? No, like the foundation's like off the sidewalk oh, yeah, and everything. <laughs> well, like he goes to buy that engine off that one guy. Yeah. And then they're going and dragging it and everything. And um, they put it in the truck. The guy's like, oh, just leave it. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then they go. And it's like they're parked uphill, by the way. And then, and then it's like he doesn't even like get to accelerate at all. It like backs up a bit. And then it just crashes onto the floor. And then it's like, oh, there goes Stan's entire paycheck of, like, the past two weeks or month even. Well, I think there's a great bit where Stan, when he's with his daughter after his friend leaves the car, he puts half the money in his front jacket pocket and half in his... The half is what he gives to the friend to, like, convince the guy. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, so instead of 20, the friend's offering 10. Like, oh, here's five more, 15. And then they get the engine for fifteen. But yeah, it's still it's it's money wasted. But then Stan shows up later, and in the same pocket, he pulls out more money that he saved to the side. And oh, you, here you guys go. Thanks for. I forget what he thanks him for, like helping with something. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but then he like ridicules him later again for <laughs> the, the not having a spare. So that's he, the that's the friend who. Oh, yeah, that was the other friend. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like boxing and talking about not wanting to move to a apartment complex. But what I was getting at, though, with the motor, though, it's um, it's very much similar to that tire yeah. situation where you don't even get the option to go. And it's like, with this engine, think of, like, what Stan could have, like, what it could have meant for his family. He could have had, like, a means of transportation to actually go and do some of these things that his family might want to do on the weekends. Or it could even lend him the opportunity to get a better job where he can, like, commute to and from home uh, more freely. 
and it's like it's it's such a it's such a ladder it's yeah. such a ladder like you have to go one rung at a time and if it breaks you're right back down to where you were and it's just so debilitating <laughs> it's awful i would never wish it upon anyone yeah it's just like as soon as the engine breaks it's just like up extreme like close up on stan's face and it's just like heartbreak and that, yeah and the daughter she watches it the whole time as mm-hmm. they leave like her face is pressed against the glass because she's aware yeah of the cost lost in the engine well one other moment that i really love too is with the son um him well with stan's uh, son and daughter they're at the kitchen table and he's eating frosted flakes. Oh yeah, <laughs> and he puts like, so much sugar in it. I, I remember, like when I first, I, when I uh, saw it, I'm like, wait, who would do that? And then I remember, I'm like, dude, I used to do yeah. that. Like, yeah. like I used to look forward to like when you were finished like eating it and then like drinking the milk and stuff, and then like getting all the sugar at the bottom. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dude, this is the best part. And then like now, as I'm older, I'm like, oh my god, that's just like dental bills like waiting <laughs> yeah. to pile up. Like, but so much can be said about like the nature of doing that it's like you're just trying to i mean like that's something i would genuinely look forward to on saturdays Mm -hmm. like eating frosted flakes with like a bunch of sugar at the bottom watching like cartoons and stuff and it's like when you're a kid you don't think about that sort of stuff like outside of like your own uh outside of your own consciousness really because it's like everything's still so new and there's so much information to process that it takes like up until like like, I feel like I didn't become fully aware of things until I was, like, 25. <laughs> and, like, and, like, given, like, the rate of information that we have now, or the amount of information that we have now, or I should say access to it, as opposed to back then, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it's like night and day, probably. No, I, li- I like that Burnett, Charles Burnett t- touches on, like, the universality of childhood, where, like, the rock fights and the plane on the train yard, and it's like, I... I was lucky enough to not get internet until like eighth grade or high school or even a computer. So we had like a PlayStation, but we would spend a lot of time just riding our bikes to our friends' houses and then riding our bikes to the overpass that has the train tracks under it. And yeah, we'd spray paint like the leftover spray paint cans on the bridge. We'd throw rocks at each other from above and below. We'd stack up like small rocks on the train tracks for the trains to come hit and put pennies on the tracks and all that stuff. Like, Oh, that was a, the film has that too, where it's just the kids playing like an empty lot or a train yard and they're all just having fun. Someone gets hurt. Someone else comes over like, Hey, stop. This guy's hurt. Obviously stop being. Yeah. There's all the great moments of like childhood encompassed in the film. Isn't that like where they were like jumping from rooftop to rooftop? Right. Um, there was that yeah. scene where I was like, I remember doing that. I, don't, I know they didn't have hey, stunt kids for this that, movie. Those were some sweet jumps, but so actually, I found out um, most deaf his album, uh, I think it's called The Ecstatic. Is uh, he took an image? For yes, that, right? a screenshot yeah. of one of those kids jumping across. Really, mm-hmm. that's incredible. Which is like, I think most deaf's best album too. And I think that's one of those things because that's another universal child thing. Like we. When we were in elementary school, we'd go to our elementary school on the weekends or after school. You'd climb up. <laughs> yeah. You're on the four-story cafeteria. You're climbing up the side, mm-hmm. like, whatever rail for the electrician or whatever. 
It's such, like, a way to, like, assert your existence as a child, like, over the system. <laughs> it's so cool. Like, <laughs> Parkour. Yeah. No, yeah, you're jumping off of the roof into, like, the grass and rolling, but mm-hmm. you're still doing it and risking it's it. It's like playing Ocarina of Time. Yeah. yeah. Like jumping up. <laughs> and, yeah, it's, like, a universal theme, and I think, I'm not sure how true this is, but I want to say Bernadette said that when they showed up to that housing area that apartment complex like the kids were just doing that and they went over and was like we're gonna film you guys doing this ski plane and when they're jumping over it's like okay like you guys are jumping over anyways we'll give you the cue and so we just do our camera move when you guys jump and there's that great shot where i think three kids jump over the walkway on like the second story and the camera tilts down right after that or i think it was like very just the kids were already playing like that and he just showed up and just gave them s- small direction. And I think he said in hindsight, he was like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have told the kids to do that. <laughs> or like, it's, maybe it was the most responsible thing. They were doing it anyways, but he's like, maybe we shouldn't have told I, them like to do it for our I, takes. I, I'd imagine there would be more outrage today oh. saying like, oh, you're exploiting the kids and, you know... Like, that's not safe, and you're filming it, like... Like, you should have would, been the one to tell them not to do yeah, it. Yeah, there would yeah. be definitely people trying to cancel this movie for doing that. Well, he's no, for sure. it, he's no John Landis? That monster. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're talking about yeah, the, yeah. The, the helicopter accident? Yeah, he mm-hmm. should uh, be the one. <laughs> I think Burnett could get away with... If they're already doing it, he can get away with like, Give us two takes. Maybe Landis should be the one to be locked well, up. Well, yeah. I feel like being Burnett is a black filmmaker he definitely would be more ridiculed than john landis who is like a pretty renowned filmmaker so and the fact that what no, there nothing came of it right didn't they get sued or something but like nothing really there weren't any yeah, definite really. consequences out of that oh yeah so. crazy with that being said should we uh give our ratings and kind of uh leave off our lasting impressions Oh yeah, we forgot the ratings. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, yeah, no. Good luck getting this film if you missed the Discord, <laughs> or you download it like I did. Well, don't tell him that, Patrick. <laughs> you find it. Charles Burnett was listening. You're like, you didn't pay. You didn't support by moving. Two seven, two hundred seventy bucks. <laughs> I think we agree that it should get a wider release. Yeah, I think we'd have common ground. I hope. Criterion needs to pick it up. I think they have maybe it may have been recent i think i know there's like a higher quality version out there than what we watched it was on the criterion channel for a bit but then it got taken down or i think they swapped it out for something else but i don't i just want access to all of it but it's <laughs> like <laughs> it's so expensive i'm sure yeah and we just want to we all want to be able to walk into that library that they have those youtube videos of yeah of everyone picks their Ooh. favorite whatever i, I I'd be walking out with like 20 bags. <laughs> I'll go first though. Um, I'm going to give this movie a 4.5 out of 5. Um, I really love the ingenuity of this movie and how much it just brought me back to moments that I was never even a part of. I felt like a, a bitter pain inside while I was watching it, but a very sweet one at the same time. One that like made me reflect on some of my own childhood memories of growing up and also other movies that I saw as a child that were very much inspired by this one. Um, 
for instance, uh, John Singleton's um, Boys in the Hood. I remember seeing that as a kid, and it left a huge impression on me. And I, I even, like, chose to write, like, a... Um, like a an essay like a 15 page paper or like or not a research paper yeah research paper on it yeah from for like a communications class because she's like oh yeah you could it it could be on any form of media i'm like dude i'm gonna do it on on it boys in the hood because like that movie is just groundbreaking and after watching this movie i'm like whoa this is like the 90s version of of killer of sheep really and i just love stories like these because they just they shed light on very underrepresented communities, but I feel like so many people grew up in these communities and it's kind of like strange that they're not more prominent. And I, I hope that this movie gets the recognition that it deserves in the future and that it can like hold up to the, to the test of time because it truly deserves to be. And I have a feeling that like, you know, as the months go by, my rating is going to change, and it's only going to go up. I don't see any reason why it would ever go down. And because, like, even now, like, there's so many scenes that pop into my head, just, like, one-off scenes. And there's just something so poignant about them. And, like, when I think about them, even if they're, like, some of the more sad scenes, like, I, I just find myself, like, really enjoying thinking about them and what they mean. And I, I love this movie. Excellent recommendation, Pat. Yeah, I'll give, I'm going to give it a four point two five. Um, yeah, I just it was like a, the only reason I'm giving it four point two five is because it's like kind of slow for me, and sometimes that's just not my style. But like, I still just loved the just how Charles Burnett captured the everyday ordinary life and. I really enjoyed uh, Stan, and I forget his wife's name, but I just really enjoyed their relationship, and I feel like he did a great job of showing, like, I feel like that's really what true love is. There's no, like, fairy tale, like, any, there's no fairy tale thing about that. It's like, they're, like, struggling, but you can tell they both still, like, love and respect each other, like, like, insanely. And also, just, like, that scene, the whole soundtrack with that scene of him and his wife dancing, I think is like one of the most like beautiful scenes I've ever seen. And uh, what is the song called? This Bitter Earth? Yeah, This Bitter Earth. By, uh, I wrote it down. Is that Rita? I wrote it down right here. Sorry, I gotta shout it out because it's such a great song. That entire scene, just oof. <laughs> and I like the their relationship feels so authentic because there's conflict yeah. and then the resolution is like so small. But it's resolution. Like, we don't need to see, like, uh, Hollywood embrace on a beach at the sunset. It's just like he puts his hand mm-hmm. on her hand when they're sitting there. When or at the, her, like, knee. You know, her knee. Yeah. Her thigh. Dina Washington. This bit of earth. And that song, I'm pretty sure, it plays twice yeah. in the film. Yeah, and it, it like, like, cuts to the, the sheep being slaughtered as mm-hmm. well, like, after the kids are playing and stuff. Oh, yeah. my God. But, yeah, it's just a freaking beautiful movie. And... I think it definitely needs more recognition, like we've all been saying. And I hope more people can watch it. Yeah. I'll go next. Uh, I'm biased, so I'm just going to give it a 5 out of 5. 
I'll probably give every movie a big five out of five because I'm a maniac. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, I do the same too. So. <laughs> uh, confe- uh, what the hell was I saying? Five out of five. There's a universal theme to the film I love that's relevant to this day, as well as it's an important historical artifact, and it deserves more recognition outside of the crit- critic sphere. And, like, the Library of Congress took it in pretty early. I think 77, and it was taken in 13 years, 12 years after it was made. It was, yeah, inducted into the Library of Congress, which is, like, a testament of it as a historical or artistic artifact produced in America. And, uh, yeah, I just hope it can reach a wider audience of people. It needs to be seen by more people, I believe. Um, for me, I'm... Right now, I'm going to give the movie a 3.75. Sometimes it takes a while for me to get into the kind of like slice of life kind of films. Because a lot of this movie, at certain points, feel mundane. And it's purposely like that. Um, Even something like some of Richard Linklater's movies, like the Before Trilogy or even... um, Gus Van Sant's Elephant, there's a, a level of mundanity to those films that at first is kind of off-putting, but I think over time I did appreciate it more as I go back to them. And um, there are a lot of really great sequences in this film, like like what Tyler mentioned, like that dance and that classic song, um, or even like that scene where those two guys were stealing the TV and the guy trying to go back and <laughs> beat up on the neighbor with a stick. Um, yeah, it's like, something about it is very endearing. But I still dislike those characters. Like, there are some characters in the movie that are so um, distasteful, but I like that the honest nature uh, that Charles Burnett is trying to bring to the film. And I think that the plotless and non almost non-linear and... Um, What's it called? It almost feels like an anthology, like I mentioned before. And some parts work for me, and, and other parts, when it doesn't go anywhere, I'm just like, dang, you know, I wanted to explore more of that. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it had a very powerful ending when it goes back to the slaughterhouse, and I'm like, man, that feels like a horror movie, just watching all the sheep getting slaughtered. It's like... I'm just thinking the whole time, man, is that real? Is that is that what they're doing real? And so much of the film, it already feels like that. So, yeah. Yeah. For anyone who, who enjoys this movie, watch Berlin Alexanderplatz. So many parallels with the slaughterhouse and just trying to make it into ordinary living. I think I'm, you I'm might s- like this. I still need to look that up. <laughs> it's, it's really fucking good. <laughs> And this movie is, like, right up there with it for me. Well, especially considering um, they're both works that were uh, released in in the 70s, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz was released, I want to say, in the 1980, around that time. Mm. But they're both very similar in terms of themes and um, messages. However, they're, ver- they're vastly different in um, terms of historical setting. Um, one is set during the 1920s in Germany, 
during like one of the worst economic downturns that they'd ever faced. And the other is in, of course, Watts. Yeah, Watts LA. Yeah, Watts LA in the seventies. And but they, it's so strange how you know time passes by, but some things never change. You know, or some things are bound to stick around, such as poverty. What is Do we have any lasting thoughts or impressions before we end our 26th episode? Mm, I have one. I forgot to mention this on the pod. But uh, I really appreciate looking at Charles Burnett's career because I feel when I was reading up on him a little bit, he's he's lived the dream. I think some we all have or as as like film students, he had like a a small collection of friends he made in the program and they just work together for the next 30 years making different films together and some received critical praise and some didn't and uh in killer sheep he's like the very early film student thing of like writer director editor he fills all the roles but yeah i just love looking at someone who's able to find that niche community in the film sphere and just make art that they wanted to make in it and i just love yeah I love I love that can that can happen. I hope it can still happen. We gotta make it happen. <laughs> Check out Mannequin. Oh yeah, if anyone wants to see my like the movie that we all worked on, um, you can go on our Instagram page at Lee Film, and then if you like find my uh, username, it's underscore Kevin Carpio. I have like a link to it in my bio if you want to check it out. It's up on Vimeo, and yeah. Um, and it's also will be playing at a festival. Oh yeah, yeah! It got accepted into a festival called the Bucharest Shortcut Cinefest out in um, Romania. And That's I'm like, awesome. I always knew I'd find success out of the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I never thought that I'd get accepted in. I mean, I never thought that I'd have any work accepted in, into a film festival. And it's like, whoa! It can actually happen. That's pretty cool. Um, sort of a dream come true i wish that i could go to it but i'm just excited that it got or that other people are going to be able to see it but yeah much like what pat was saying that is the dream charles burnett has lived the dream i i very i very much wish to have something similar to that in my own life of just being able to make things with my friends and help them make things that they want to make and yeah just spending time with them working towards something together yeah, especially considering that um, the movie, I don't know if it's about achieving any kind of dream or some American dream. It's just about like trying to live with what they have. And um, yeah, they don't have any lofty ambitions or anything. It's just, you know, trying to get to the horse race. You know, that's like the next thing. You know, they don't have like this, <laughs> yeah, crazy ambitions to be, I don't know, whatever they want to be. Like he, yeah. They don't want to be the next Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to be the millionaire. They just want yeah. to be 
and be able to be together. Mm-hmm. And to live well. Just trying to have a good time. We're on our way, you know. We're doing it. We're doing it right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just trying to get to the next thing, you know. Yeah. But with that being said, thank you for tuning in to our podcast, uh, our 26th episode, Killer of Sheep. And next week, we're going to have our 27th episode in which Kevin is going to be making the next selection. Yep, it's a Buffalo 66 by Vincent Gallo. And I first watched it back in, or I want to say last year. Yeah, in December. And it had been on my radar for quite a long time just because of some of the stills that I saw from it. And I'm very interested to hear what everyone thinks of it. And are we doing a viewing? Let's do a viewing. Yeah, okay, so we're going to be doing a viewing party on it. If you if you happen to listen to this, uh, I don't know if, if it'll come out before we announce the viewing party or not, but... I think, yeah, I think it will. I'm going to edit this today, so okay. I can be ready for tonight. Because the clips are already on the drive. Oh, shoot, I can post for that. No one heard that. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, there will be a viewing party. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think we should keep up the theme. I, I was going to see if you guys are interested in, like, a earlier... Like a Tuesday or Monday viewing, mm-hmm. and then we meet and record it whatever day, but between that and Friday, and then try to have it okay. out Friday or that weekend. That sounds cool with me. Because I think like a, a same week release will be able to keep people engaged. I know it helped me look forward to a podcast. Cool. And yeah, the Alihambra Theater. If you know how to use Discord, just hop in the Alihambra Theater. You should be allowed to. Oh yeah, there's the the invite link to our Discord is up on our um, Instagram page in our bio as well. Yeah, if uh, anyone has any questions or feedback on any of that, like our Discord or any of the film selections that we had, or yeah, just any kind of constructive feedback you guys want to provide, uh, just email us at layfilmpodcast at gmail dot com, and you guys can follow us on Instagram as well at layfilm. Definitely message us there. We have all our handles in the bio so you guys can always reach out to us please please send me arguments about film takes we've all had i'd love to counter argue so please anything i want all the smoke (laughs) very sensitive i i don't have much of a response if i feel like yeah i'm like stuck in my bubble i'm just gonna cry <laughs> hide in the closet and not say anything well, the they secret yeah this is like my film pick <laughs> i'll just well, leave you on red the secret is if they have a valid point and a good counterpoint you just insult them directly <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just send them a, a laughing emoji and that's how you win or a, a, a favorite of mine is a photo of a gun <laughs> Okay, that's enough. <laughs> I'm done making dumb jokes. <laughs> anyway, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time. This bitter earth Well... What the fruit it bears What 
good is love That no one shares And if my life Is like the dust Ooh, that hides The glow of a rose For what good am I Heaven only knows Lord, this bitter earth Yes, can be so cold Today you're young Too soon you're old But while a voice Within me cries I'm sure someone may answer my call This bitter earth 